Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Carlos Ernesto Escobar Mejia, a 57-year-old Salvadorian man who lived in the U.S. for four decades, died from COVID-19 on Wednesday, May 6th. He is the first confirmed death from the disease of a detainee in an ICE detention center. Escobar Mejia had been held at the Ote Mesa Detention Center in California since January 10th, when he was stopped in a car by the Border Patrol in Chula Vista, a city on the boundary with Mexico. Ote Mesa had 144 confirmed COVID-19 cases among its roughly 630 detainees at the beginning of May. This is by far the most of any ICE facility. Only 181 detainees had been tested as of May 6th. His death came after weeks of illness. Escobar Mejia told his family and an immigration court that he was concerned that his history of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart problems, and an amputated foot put him at high risk for succumbing to COVID-19 inside the Ote Mesa Detention Center. On April 15th, an immigration judge had denied his request for release, deeming him a flight risk, despite his fragile health, which by that time had required him to use a wheelchair. Advocates for the release of all ICE detainees warn Escobar Mejia is the first person to die from COVID-19 in immigration custody. Roughly 30,000 people remain detained in ICE facilities and county jails that contract with ICE. Since the U.S. government started testing in February, it's reported more than 850 total COVID-19 infections among detainees. That means more than half of tested detainees were positive for the virus. However, the dearth of testing means the numbers could be higher. CoreCivic, the private company that runs the Ote Mesa and thousands of incarceration sites across the U.S. has said that it followed CDC guidelines and protocols for containing the spread of the virus. Doctors, however, fear a wave of new infections will explode into communities around ICE detention centers. This week, Doctors for Camp Closure, a group of over 2,000 physicians and healthcare professionals who oppose the inhumane detention of migrants and refugees, launched a week of 24-hour vigils at all ICE offices and detention centers. They demand the immediate release of all ICE detainees because social distance is not possible and the medical consequences for continued detention are fatal. Dozens of sanitation workers in New Orleans, employed by the temp service People Ready, began a strike May 6th. The workers, who make only $10.25 an hour, are demanding a meeting with Metro Services Group, the solid waste management company who subcontract their labor to collect garbage in New Orleans, to negotiate better working conditions, including readily available and proper PPE, a wage of $15 per hour, and hazard pay. After firing the striking workers, Metro brought in incarcerated workers without training or safety equipment from nearby Livingston Parish, paying less than $4 per hour. Metro was forced to stop this illegal practice due to public outrage on May 11th. The sanitation workers, all black men organized under the banner City Waste Union, are going on their ninth day at the picket line. A press conference has been announced for Monday, May 18th. The following is from their press release. With 70% of COVID-19 deaths in the Black community in New Orleans, now is the time to change the underlying issues that create this tragic situation. 
lack of adequate and secure pay, lack of health insurance, sick pay, vacation pay, and greater exposure of workers to COVID-19, stress of racist inequality, dangerous jobs, and discrimination in healthcare have long been documented as issues behind shorter lifespans and more deaths. These are the issues we are striking to correct. Black workers' lives matter. On May 9th, people imprisoned in the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, went on strike. The collective work stoppage was called after Immigration and Customs Enforcement returned someone to the facility who was sick and had already tested positive for COVID-19. Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill has been found guilty of misdemeanor battery and two related violations of the Indiana Rules of Professional Conduct by the Indiana Supreme Court. He is ordered to serve a 30-day suspension beginning May 18th. It is unclear what the one-month suspension will mean for Hill's ability to remain in office or for the running of the office of the Attorney General. The violations stem from March 2018, when four women accused Hill of drunkenly groping them at a party. All four have spoken publicly about the incident, named as Democratic State Representative Mara Candelaria Reardon and legislative staffers Gabrielle McLemore Brock, Nikki De Silva, and Samantha Lozano. These allegations became public in July 2018 when a memo about the incident written by the Taft Law Firm in Indianapolis surfaced. Hill has denied the allegations, claiming his contact with the women remained in a manner that is to be expected during a crowded social event. However, the accusers characterized his conduct as specifically sexual and without consent. The key issue related to the appropriate sanction for Hill's misconduct was his response to the leaking of the Taft memo. Hearing officer Myra Selby, a former Indiana Supreme Court justice, determined his response was, quote, significantly abrogating in nature, end quote. However, the high court disagreed. Specifically at issue were emails and press releases that Hill and his staff put out in the wake of the memo's leak. Among them, a press release aimed at Nikki Da Silva, who had mistakenly sent a draft of her public statement regarding her allegations to an attorney general's office email address. Hill characterized Da Silva's message, intended for a friend, as being editorialized and as evidence of coordination among the accusers. The court found that the aggressive actions taken by Hill and his team were aimed at the process that led to the public accusations, not the accusers. The court also decided that Hill was entitled to defend himself, including denial, but that he went too far in characterization of the allegations as malicious, a characterization which could serve to intimidate anyone considered stepping forward. While the High Court found Hill's actions after the memos released questionable, they deemed they were not to an extent that would prompt him to undergo the reinstatement process in order to prove his fitness to resume the practice of law. The High Court declined to revisit the issues of whether Hill committed felony sexual battery against De Silva and whether he violated the oath of attorneys. The justices also noted strong disapproval of the tenor of attorneys representing both sides, noting what they saw as hyperbolic references to Hill as a sexual predator. The justices also deplored Hill's description of the commission as imperialist, coddling, dismissive, and arrogant. Hill will be automatically reinstated at the end of the 30-day period. The core of this week's Kite Line is a conversation between Anastasia Schmid and Jennifer Fleming about trying to get an education before, during, and after incarceration. You've heard Anastasia on Kite Line before, both while she was inside at the Indiana Women's Prison and since she was released last year. 
We'll be sharing more of these conversations about prison's barriers to higher education in upcoming episodes. For now, here's Anastasia and Jennifer. This is Anastasia Schmid reporting on barriers to higher education for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. Today we're talking to Jennifer Fleming, who is a business analysis working under contract with the Department of Health. Hi, Jennifer. How are you today? Hi, Anastasia. I'm doing great. How are you? Well, you know, pretty good, all things considering right now. Uh, so today we're going to talk to you about your experience with higher education before, during, and after incarceration. So can you give me a brief history of what your educational endeavors looked like uh, before prison? So um, before prison, um, I, I dropped out of high school and um, I actually received my GED um, in the course of a previous incarceration. And then uh, many years after that incarceration, I decided as um, adult an adult in my 30s that I wanted to get a college education because I wanted to be able to do better for my children than I was doing. And so I started taking classes at Indiana Purdue University in Fort Wayne. And when I got arrested, I was in my fourth year of college working on a degree in health and human sciences. So I was arrested in November. And so I didn't receive any of the credits from that semester. And it put me uh, in a really awful place when it came to my student loans because I was already like $47,000 in debt for student loans. And somehow with the time frame that I got arrested, it left me not only owing for the student loan for that, that time frame, but also owing the college because a par portion of my grant monies wasn't given to the college. So I still owed for grant monies and I still owed the college for that semester. Oh, well, I can see where that would be problematic, not only at that time, but later on in your life. So prior to incarceration, did you acquire any credits towards that degree, uh, not counting the semester you were arrested? I was actually in my senior year, and so I was very close to receiving a bachelor's degree. However, I was going through a four-year program. There was no degree in between, and so when I was arrested, though I was close to a degree, I never actually earned a degree. So you roughly had how many semesters in, not counting the one that was incomplete? I probably had about eight semesters in because I took summer semesters also. Wow. Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit in time. So you were maybe just a semester, no more than two semesters shy of earning your bachelor's degree when you got arrested and incarcerated. So after you began your prison time, Ed, yes. uh, what point were you able to start taking college classes again? So just kind of give us a little bit of a synopsis of what it looked like once you got inside and, and what your pursuit to complete your education looked like from the inside. When I first got to prison, I'd heard that there was college at the prison, but it wasn't really something that was advertised. And so the sign-up sheets had went out when I first got there, but I didn't know what they were. So I missed the opportunity to sign up. I couldn't take classes in the fall. I had to wait until the spring session came around to be able to take classes because I, was on, I didn't know about the sign-up process when I first got there. So it was in 2014 when I started um, taking classes at the college. I was in Indiana Women's Prison, okay. and the, the college that happened to be allowing classes at the time was Martin University. Teachers were coming in and volunteering their time, and um, somebody else was supplying resources, and basically, they, the college was just allowing us to earn credits for the classes that volunteers were coming in and facilitating. And I was told when I signed up for classes that I was working towards a degree, 
but that, you know, you got to earn credits to earn, work towards a degree. And so what they told me is that they would look into transferring some of my credits, but even if they transferred my credits, they would only be able to transfer half of the credits that I would need for a degree because I would be required to earn half of my credits through their institution in order to, to get or, and receive a degree from them. Wow, so you probably lost 30 to 40 or more credit hours from your previous institution? Yes, so it knocked me back down to the halfway point, but the way that I viewed it at the time is I really wanted to get my degree. When I was being sentenced, the prosecuting attorney thought that it was funny and amusing that I had a ton of student loan debt that I would probably never be able to pay off because I was going to prison. That set wrong with me, and I was determined that if at all possible, I was going to leave prison with a degree. And I also knew too that based off of the way that the situation happened, that I would no longer be able to get Pell Grants or would be, I, my loans would be in a status that would keep me from being able to take out any further loans. And so if I was going to get a degree, it was only going to be by the grace of God <laughs> is the way I viewed it at the time. Great. Okay. So obviously we have the grace of God on our side in this, but also um, who was paying for the schooling inside the prison at the time. Um, to my understanding, the Pell Grants were no longer available. So how was Martin University and your college credits working towards a degree being funded at that time? Volunteers were teaching the classes for free. And then there were donations that were paying for the books and paper and supplies like that. And I believe that Miss um, Kelsey Kaufman basically just reached out and did a fundraising event with some of the people that she knew and they donated money and that's how the books were paid for. So then Martin was just uh, acknowledging the credits. They weren't spending any money. They weren't, they were just being willing to give, be a accrediting institution. Okay. And so did you end up finishing your degree with Martin or did you have to take further steps in order to finish that degree? So unfortunately, uh, Martin University, three semesters into my experience with them, were put on academic probation. And because they were put on academic probation, they were no longer allowed to have off-site campuses. And so they had to withdraw from um, having classes and accrediting classes at the prison. So we were without a college at all for a semester or two. But years were still coming in, and we were taking classes not for credit just in order to be able to still be um, learning and in order to have the skill set that would be needed in, if college were ever to come back in. Well, and eventually, Kelsey Kaufman was able to get Holy Cross Institution, which is a sister school to Notre Dame. She was able to get them to come into the prison also. And at this time, there was a pilot program for Pell Grants. And so Holy Cross had applied to be a part of the pilot program in order to uh, have some funding for, for the college students. However, in the first year that they were there, they were just, Holy Cross was basically footing the bill. They um, had an outreach program and they thought that it fit into their mission and, and as a part of their outreach program. And so then they were hiring professors to come in and they were paying for, for books and supplies. And while they were doing that, they were applying to be a part of the pilot program. They actually were approved for the pilot program, IWP, and one of the men's prisons were approved to have the pilot program for Pell Grants. However, th that didn't work out the way that people thought that it was going to because many of the individuals that were in the college program were actually not eligible to get the 
Pell Grants based off of how the Second Chance Grant Program was set up. And because of the way that it was set up, it still wasn't allowing the college to get funding. And then that particular institution, two years after having been there, went into um, a financial crisis. And because of their financial crisis, they pulled out of the institution once again. When they came into the institution, they too also knocked me back down to the halfway point. They wanted half of my credits to be earned through their institution in order for them to grant me a degree. So they knocked me right back down to the halfway point when it came to my credits once again. Were you able to earn any degrees at all at this point in time? You've now had schooling on the outside at IUPUI Fort Wayne, and now you've gone to Martin and you're now in Holy Cross. So were any degrees earned uh, with the totality of credits earned from those three institutions? So I was able to, in the two years that Holy Cross was in the institution, combining their credits with a portion of my other credits, I was able to earn an associate's degree. Unfortunately, with the way that they pulled out of the prison and the utter chaos that pursued from that, I had to petition them and had to go through a process that lasted a year. So it took me a year to get them to grant the degree that I had earned at the time of their leaving. An associate's degree in real time in normal circumstances would take a human being no longer than two years to earn. At this point in time, starting from the time you began school in the outside world to the time that degree was finally granted, how many years are we talking about, Jennifer? Oh, about six years. Wow. Six years for Total, with the outside and the inside. Yes. (laughs) That's uh, that's pretty amazing and uh, tenacious of you to continue that drive despite all those obstacles. So we know you did indeed finally receive your associate's degree. Were you ever able to attain that bachelor's degree and what did that look like? Okay, so that looked like Bard's Prison Intuitive, uh, which was started in New York. They uh, were aware of our prison and of our college program. They were aware when Holy Cross pulled out and I had actually been a part of a meeting where um, Jessica Neptune had come in and at that meeting, I was pretty exasperated and very emotional about the fact that, see, when when Holy Cross pulled out, I had one semester left and I would have got my bachelor's degree also. Uh So I would have earned my associate's degree and then one semester later, I would have earned my bachelor's degree. My world was devastated when they pulled out, number one, because the associate's degree was a year off my sentence. Number two, the bachelor's degree would have been two years off my sentence, and that would have meant going home um, to my family no later than 2019. And it also, like, I really want my degree. Like, take away the time cuts. Don't even look at those. Just look at the fact that I am very passionate about education, and I wanted to be able to show my children that, like, when you work hard for something and you put your mind to it, you can earn it. You can do it. So I was devastated, and um, Jessica Neptune was there, and she heard my devastation, And she worked very hard to raise the money, get the funding, and find a university to come in and begin a program. They wanted to take longer to bring the program in than what they actually did. And I know that part of her drive was just the pure devastation that she saw um, the day that they broke it to me that I would not be able to earn my degree. Right. So this woman was through the Bard Prison Initiative Project, correct? Yes, she was. They brought Marion University in. And she personally took my credits um, to the ProBar's office and sat down with the dean and the ProBar, and they went over my credits and my transcripts from um, all three of the other institutions, and they figured out a 
plan that would make their college um, happy and feel okay about giving me a degree because, you know, originally they wanted to knock me back down to the halfway point. Oh my goodness. And at this point, my devastation is so complete that I'm like, are you kidding me? And so um, they sat down and had a meeting and had a conversation. Uh, they did not knock me back down to the halfway point, but I did have to complete a full year at their college. So they came in in January. I went to spring classes, summer classes, and fall classes. And in December of 2019, I finally earned my bachelor's degree. Well, congratulations. Now, were your classes, were they remote classes through correspondence, or did you have uh, live interactive classes, or were you doing classes via Skype? My classes were mostly live interactive classes. They would have uh, college professors come into the prison, and they would teach just like they would teach at any other college institution. The only difference is we had to work around some of the technological stuff because obviously you're not going to have access to the same technology inside of the prison as you would in a university's classroom. And so we had to learn the old-fashioned way. But yes, <laughs> teachers came in and they taught. Other than the fact that there were clearly um, barriers in technology to your education on the inside, were there any other barriers you faced uh, taking college classes in a prison setting versus in the outside world? When you don't have the technology, doing your own research can become very difficult. So you have to find alternative ways to research. You have to know what sources you want so you can tell somebody what to go get for you. And so that, that can be very challenging to figure out how to research without having the access to the actual research. When you have group projects and you're in a facility where movement is controlled and very limited, um, being able to get together and have a space and a time to be able to do those group projects can be very challenging. And I'll be honest with you, Anastasia, I also had the challenge of um, one of the dorms that I worked, lived on, the only place that I could really work on my homework was in my room. I was on the top bunk. And so I would sit on my floor to work on my homework. And the, one of the guards that w uh, was our main guard did not like me to sit on the floor and work on my homework. So she would come by on a regular basis and give me a hard time about sitting on the floor doing my homework about my papers or my research being or set, setting out around me because she would want me to pick it up. Um, and so just being able to work in a way that is conducive to my work style sometimes could be a challenge. Well, yeah, especially in light of harassment about where you're studying and how you're studying, I can imagine that would be difficult. Okay, so you finally earn both the associates and the bachelor's degree. What did that mean for you other than obviously the amazing achievement of finally accomplishing both degrees after so much time and hardship? What else did those two degrees bring for you in your life? They definitely brought that sense of accomplishment and they validated the time that I was taking away from everybody I loved just a little bit. It at least gave it some sort of positive meaning. I also did get some time cuts for my associate. Um, I ended up getting a year time cut. And for my bachelor's degree, I ended up getting around six months worth of a time cut. Fairly newly released, Jennifer. Uh, with these I am. Great uh, degrees and accomplishments under you. Uh, give us a brief uh, overview of what life looks like for you now on the outside. Is there any further education in your future, or um, what of these? What are what do the degrees do for you now that you're in the outside world? Okay, so while I was in, I also got some tech training, 
And so an interesting thing that has happened for me is first off, when I first got out, based off of my degrees and my tech training, I received a phone call or a text message from the Department of Corrections asking me to come in for an interview because they had my resume sitting in front of them and felt like I was qualified for a position they had open. Wow. So two weeks after incarceration, I actually began working for the Indiana State Department of Corrections in their central office. So that was an interesting thing that came from my, my educational experiences on the and, inside. And what were you doing and then, then? I was working in their IT department. Um, working on their data, their databases and their di their different computer systems that well that that are state operated systems, and so I also uh, now I work for the um, Indiana Department of Health, and this is a really super thing cool thing because my degree um, I double majored my degrees in liberal arts but I double majored in behavioral science and in humanities and I minored in communications and then I uh, you know I have some tech training that doesn't have anything to do with my college education. It's through another program I went through. But in my mind, I was trying to figure out how I was going to make all these different educational endeavors that um, I've experienced, like become a job or how do you link these two things? And I'm discovering uh, this project that I'm working on with the Department of Health is allowing me to use those behavioral science skills, to use those humanities, to use that communication and then also bring in the technological training that I have and they're really meshing very well together and allowing me to use all of the educational skills that I received while I was on the inside to live a pretty decent life on the outside. That's great. Um, I just wanted to make mention of one. And other yes, thing. I do plan on going um, on. <laughs> okay, well, I think you're going to be able to go on because I wanted to uh, mention one other very impressive thing. Tell us about what your GPA looked like upon graduation. Um, I had a 4.0 um, GPA. I think they call that cum laude or something. <laughs> cum laude, honey. <laughs> I don't. I don't know, but I. Yeah, it's, it's something like that. Um, I graduated from Marion University with a, a 4.0 GPA. So yeah, that 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 was super awesome. And um, now I do intend on going on and getting my master's. Um, I'm struggling right now in trying to decide exactly what I want to do. There's like three different things that. I toss around, um, and recently this new thing has entered into my mind, and so um, I'm trying to figure out exactly which educational path that I want to take, but I do plan on starting to take um, classes for my master's this fall. Yeah. Do you think you'll face any obstacles that will prevent you from uh, going on to get that master's once you finally do decide what it is you'd like to do and where you'd like to go? Funding is always a question, you know, student loan debt already being what it is and um, having been in prison, they don't exactly like to defer because you're incarcerated. And so there's some, some hoops I would probably have to jump through in order to get funding. So probably I will just have to pay for it out of pocket. And, you know, I don't know, the, the school has a choice whether or not to accept me to their program also. So um, I would assume that a school would accept me, but I am a convicted felon, and so maybe they won't accept me. One person comes from a similar background to another and who has is right at the tail end now of completing a graduate degree in the free world. There are people out there willing to give you a chance, so don't give up on your dreams, Jennifer. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and share your experiences with us. Thank you. 
This has been KiteLine. We're still taking calls for our coronavirus hotline, and we've been hearing from inmates all across the country. We'll have more of the calls on our website and on next week's show, but we encourage you to get the word out to those you know on the inside so they can record a message about the impact of COVID-19 on the facilities they're in. That number is 765-343-6236. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.